This podcast is on population analysis. Now, if you're one of my academic or ISRP advisees, or if you're in my fall elective, or if you've seen me at any of my conferences, you may be familiar uh, with the readings and should please also um, watch the Mercier video, which is an extension really from the Mercier reading that we had uh, a month ago. In this course, and for the purposes of this lesson, and I'm speaking specifically to those who took the Information Warfare elective in the fall, we're not, of course, focused specifically or only on influence campaigns. We are focused instead on continuing last week's intelligence analysis best practices and leveraging them, some of those ideas, into new frameworks to analyze populations and behaviors. And importantly, we have, at least in my personal opinion, one of the world's top population analysis scholars um, leading our plenary, and that's our very own Dr. Sutherland, co-director of IWS and FSL to a third of you. So there, at least in plenary, there'll be no more Howard diatribes on the strengths and weaknesses of surveys, polls, and social media data culling. But I'm going to go on a diatribe here, and I'm going to go a little more deeply than in past podcasts, for example, in the fall when I talked about population analysis, and at the end, I'm going to discuss a little bit about um, conducting polls and surveys in unstable areas, something that I haven't talked about previously in any of my podcasts. So this is the second lesson, population analysis, of in our final tranche of lessons. This is applying what we learned in lessons one through eight to analyzing and navigating the global information environment, the information terrain, if you will. The Blomart reading underlines how anthropologists can never rely only on interviews, surveys, and polls. But that is a survey or a poll is but one set of data points to analyze a community. Now the Lankford reading has a purpose, and I don't want the Lankford reading to derail our dialogue and seminar and plenary. It can derail it because the subject matter is very interesting. The subject matter is violent extremism, terrorism, and suicide bombings, something that we're going to come back to in a radicalization lesson later in the course. Although the subject matter may be fascinating, it certainly is for me, it is Langford's claims about the limits of interviews, of surveys, and of polls that are important to this lesson. He is questioning one of the primary sources of data for some social science scholars. And boy, did he get make some people very angry and very unhappy. Uh, I certainly don't come down on one side or the other. Instead, I think that Langford provides an antithesis, a counterpoint, if you will, on how the media perhaps overemphasizes polls, surveys, and social media metadata calling. In other words, collecting. Calling means uh, collecting uh, data, if you will. Perhaps they emphasize it too much in the media. So this reading is to generate rich debate and dialogue. It's certainly not to say that surveys or interviews um, don't have a important place in methodology and research. I think 
taking a step back for a second, this lesson is important for three reasons. The first is the target of much of most information persuasion and influence campaigns is ultimately the human being and their behavior. Number two, you may also be in positions after NDU, perhaps before your time at NDU, to outsource measures of effect, measures of impact of information campaigns. If so, we want to arm you with questions and considerations when reading or listening to contractor bids. Polls and surveys and online data calling is a massive industry. And we want you to be prepared, we all want to be prepared, to avoid those whose methodologies may be wanting, those whose methodologies may come up short, whose findings may be less than meaningful, and in some cases, worse than nothing. And finally, number three, for the importance of this lesson, we want to continue our journey on challenging ourselves on new frameworks to analyze the global information environment, which may be, I think, helpful in any type of campaign, diplomacy, military, economy, information, any type of campaign in any genre to understand the effects on human beings. Now I'll chat quickly about some of the possible limitations of surveys, polls, interviews, and online data calling of opinions. Uh, this is going to be my diatribe in just a minute here. Uh, this is meant as separate from Dr. Southern, Sutherland's plenary although she may touch on some of these points. This podcast will also attempt to ask further questions from our two readings and our one video, uh, not to replace the readings, but to challenge ourselves to get even more out of the readings, to raise some further questions, uh, to hopefully instigate a richer seminar dialogue and debate. So some thoughts on population analysis. Sometimes it's called atmospherics uh, in the field. And I'm going to make a number of claims. I don't necessarily agree with all these claims, uh, but I'm going to, again, have my little diatribe here to generate uh, debate and discussion. Reported opinions rarely reflect actual opinions. We do a pretty bad job of understanding what our real emotional emotions and biases might be. Actual opinions rarely reflect true beliefs, and true, true beliefs rarely translate into action. And I might advise or counsel that we should all take this into account when looking to survey and poll data. We must look perhaps to other sources, whether it's ethnography, history, or direct observation. And this is right out of the ethnog uh, ethnographic reading or ethnography reading. Um, and I want to emphasize this point. I want you to consider this point uh, within the context of the readings, especially. People are not cultural or linguistic catalogs. And most of what we see as their cultural and social behavior is performed without reflecting on it and without an active awareness that this is actually something they do. Consequently, it is not a thing they have an opinion about, nor an issue that can be comfortably put into words when you ask about it. Asking is indeed very often the worst possible way of trying to find out. So from someone that has conducted anthropological studies, I can attest to 
the limitations of interviews or polls or surveys. Most people don't have an opinion on most things. We get the idea that everyone has a legitimate opinion on things, certainly from uh, Western media, but this is, even in the West, arguably, arguably, this is not the case. So this is a call a little bit to both the ethnography reading, but also to Adam Langford. And that is people have no opinion about most of things that happen around them. There are very, very few issues in the world that are everybody's concern. The media gives a different image that everyone has a good or valid opinion about everything. And I'm going to quote a little bit from uh, Adam Langford, and then I'll discuss some more. And this comes from Adam. The simplest way to try to understand people's motives is just to ask them. The easiest way to know what's going on in someone's, uh, in some, inside people's brains is to listen to what comes out of their mouths. And he says this sort of sarcastically, or he says this from the standpoint of other social scientists that might put too much emphasis on interviews. He goes on to say, This is how social scientists often get their information, by administering surveys and conducting interviews, then tallying the results. It gives them new, exclusive, and empirical data, and this is kind of dripping with maybe a little bit of uh, cheekiness uh, and certainly a lot of irony. It gives them new, exclusive, and empirical data. They usually assume that their subject statements can be trusted, so they run with them. But, he warns, but you can't believe everything you hear. Respondents may give consistently unreliable answers. They may be influenced by social and cultural biases, I'm quoting here, they may be lying with ulterior motives, they may be in psychological denial, and they may lack the knowledge to provide accurate answers. Now, if we turn a page to what we know about neurobiology, and this is according to studies that have been done uh, in the last 19 and a half years, repeated and repeatable studies on six continents, we find, and I'm quoting from an uh, earlier reading that we had on foundational narratives in the subconscious, when it comes to understanding our feelings, we humans have an odd mix of low ability and high confidence. We are not like computers that crunch data in a relatively straightforward manner and calculate results. The real reasons behind our judgments, feelings, and behavior can surprise us. Now to look at uh, within the communications uh, discipline, specifically on social media. In social media, users often and I'm quoting here from an article that was written by a Georgetown professor, uh, present an ideal face to the world that might mask their truth and perhaps less ideal emotions. Data calling can't always detect irony, sarcasm, and other subtle traits. And to quote from a New York Times article on November 15th, 2020, it can be hard to untangle theatrical outrage and Twitter screaming matches from real differences in values. People's spoken and written opinions may have very little to do with intensity and consistency of belief. Now there's also some limitations to studies in behavioral psychology. Sometimes students uh, and those able to read about and have time to partake in psychology studies uh, may be considered by some critics of those studies as weird societal groups. Weird here is an acronym meaning Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. So if there's a study that's conducted on the campus of Brown University with Brown University's master students, that isn't necessarily representative 
of other US persons or people around the world. So I want to take a page now from historical or historian methodologies. And this comes from Max Hastings, these ideas, um, World War II historian. Um, and I think we can learn from some of the challenges that historians face. Historians, when diving into archival research on warfare, must be skeptical of official journals after action reports and logs. And I am quoting here from Hastings, few official narratives in any language explicitly acknowledge disaster, panic, or failure, or admit that people run away. So there's limitations even in archival research. So I would say or warn or perhaps gently advise that commanders should demand to know uh, the methodological strengths and weaknesses of any population study, any what is sometimes called human terrain study. We have to understand that tweets and poll answers may very often not reflect real beliefs and that self-reported beliefs may not translate into action. I would argue that we must analyze poll surveys and metadata calling critically to use a quantitative and perhaps also qualitative methodologies to help us out. Surveys and data calling in the fields of security should be tested also elsewhere to see if they're generating false leads. I do want to contradict myself for a second here because I've just talked about how we can't believe what, you know, uh, what everybody says uh, or at least we should try to investigate further. Um, from any data that we get from social media, professed opinions, or any data that we get from, um, uh, from surveys, polls, or interviews. And that is, there are times in history when leaders, strategic leaders, did not believe what was being said to their own detriment, what was being said by a would-be adversary or a competitor. An example, uh, up in, during World War II, during the end of World, or sorry, during World War One, during the end of the First World War, the Kaiser's intelligence apparatus failed to believe Lenin's published goals and intent. Lenin sought a global revolution that ultimately would affect Germany, and according to some, uh, according to uh, a lot of historical research on World War One, again. They believed, they read what Lenin was writing, but didn't believe either that it was achievable or believed that this is something he truly would attempt to do. Also, international analysts failed to believe Hitler's published goals. In 1925 and 1926, in two different, uh, two short volumes, uh, he published plainly, Hitler published plainly, his anti-Semitism um, he described his anti-Semitism, his disgust of Jewish people, his disgust of communists, and very importantly, uh, his need, his feeling for a need for a vast expanse of German living space, uh, as he called it, historical destiny. So something to consider is our stated intentions and goals too often ignored as bluster, as maybe political maneuvering or political you know, taking a certain political stance to get office, maybe exaggerating. When should we actually listen to what people are saying, especially when they will actually conduct or materialize the narrative that they put forth? And finally, I want to talk about some points on conducting surveys, polls, and interviews in insecure or unstable areas. They sometimes can be deeply flawed. 
Insecure areas may keep locals from answering questions truthfully out of fear of violent extremist retribution. This is, I'm actually talking specifically in this case about Yemen, Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan, some of the most overpolled places in the world. Those that speak in insecure areas may taper their answers out of fear, causing perhaps some level of social desirability bias. Thus, insecure and unstable areas may seem to harbor the fewest grievances. Relatively more secure pockets in otherwise unstable countries may allow people to feel that they can speak more freely to criticize foreign and local formal government representatives. Thus, secure and relatively stable areas may seem to harbor the strongest grievance in some surveys. Regardless of how a surveyor introduces the survey, respondents may believe that local and foreign governments may read the answers and judge respondents negatively. Thus, answers may be tainted, no matter how, again, regardless of how the surveyor introduces the survey or promises that the people, uh, their names will be kept off the answers. Those with access to media may speak about their opinions on their perception of their country or region writ large, vice their own community, independent uh, if the question is about the community, or independent if the question is about the community or not. Respondents may taint their answers with countrywide opinions. Operations, federal government presence, unfolding international events, and other outside factors may hurt or help perceptions on security and governance. Uh, Third-party activity may affect answers. So what's going on in the world may affect answers, especially if a poll or a survey is being done, let's say on a monthly or weekly basis, we have to know what else is going on to better understand certain patterns from polls and surveys. The presence of foreign militaries and formal government actors may lead to an increase in collateral damage and spikes in perceptions of insecurity. In war zones and amidst civil strife, most civilians cannot be reached for surveys or interviews. Thus, sample sizes may be highly unreliable. Surveys in insecure areas demand that special consideration be given to ensuring that both researchers and research subjects are not put at risk, which may uh, undermine accuracy. Convenience polling, that is only polling in areas where people um, are readily available to answer questions safely, will skew analysis of the population. Uh, in one survey in 2013, an Afghanistan district in northern Helmand province with arguably some of the most vicious and continuous violence in the world at that time, appeared to be the safest and most stable uh, uh, area of all of Afghanistan in those poll results. This is according to the, um, a research service that does an annual poll. Uh, perhaps because only citizens in the safe zone near the governor's office answered the questions, which is something that people had, had seen that was happening. So there was skewed results coming from an unstable area. This was observed by military officials uh, that this, this, uh, this data um, collection was not using a sound methodology. Villages often have unique ways of describing threats such as various, and this, in this case I'm talking about uh, Syria, Yemen, uh, and Afghanistan, not as much Iraq. Um, villages may often have unique ways of describing threats such as various violent extremist cells, and criminal groups. Without nuanced definitions and language for each village, neighborhood, or tribal area, surveys may fail to accurately capture local perceptions or threats. 
Also, in some areas of the world, um, respondents will answer why, how did this happen, and what were the events that led to this differently, revealing cultural, philosophical, cognitive, and um, language variances among different villages, different tribal areas, leading sometimes to inaccuracies in polling. Closed and leading questions often lead to inaccurate answers, whereas open questions and discussions play sometimes, especially in Afghanistan, uh, play into the long and rich narrative traditions. Often open questions lead to respondents speaking about important matters not thought of when designing the initial questions, or respondents take time getting to the point of a particular question. This is something that I found uh, when I've been conducting interviews in the Middle East and Southwest Asia, uh, also in the Horn of Africa, which is sometimes I'll have a number of questions, but let's say question, open questions, uh, but, but sometimes they'll get to question one in question five. They'll kind of think about things as they go along or as they are telling stories. If the surveyor does not understand the local dialect, there may be important nuances lost in translation. This is very important, especially in a place like Afghanistan, where there's many dialects of Dari and uh, Pashto, for example. Uh, independent of how a surveyor introduces the survey, respondents may believe that answers could lead to development projects, especially in light of past development and humanitarian aid and stabilization projects, because groups oftentimes when you implementing partners are, um, let's say they are building a school in a certain area, they'll often conduct surveys ahead of time, surveys afterwards to try to measure uh, impact. They want those initial surveys to have sort of a baseline. Um, and there are areas in the world, pockets in, for example, Africa, Southwest and Southeast Asia, where if you're conducting a survey, very often there might be a misbelief that, oh, this might lead to something. And so that might lead people's answers. In other words, if people want a well, they may stress that having a well is one of the most important issues when perhaps it's not uh, at that time. So some uh, thoughts, some ideas for us to debate and think about. I look forward to seeing you in plenary and seminar. Thank you.